morning. Are you all ready for this? Okay. We're going to start in Ephesians 6, 2 and 3. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live a long life on the earth. Honor your father and mother is one of the Ten Commandments. It's the most repeated of the Ten Commandments in Scripture. I think it's in the New Testament five or six times. Uh, Jesus highlighted it, and so did other New Testament authors. Obviously, the main application of this command is for us toward our mom and dad, that I am to honor my mother, mother and father, that, that my life will go well, and that I will live long on the earth. But there, I think there are other ways that this commandment can and needs to be applied. I think that our country needs to honor its founding fathers and mothers in order that we would have a long life and that it would go well with us. Tomorrow is our 244th birthday, the anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And there's a lot of people talking a lot of smack about America and the founding fathers. And I want to tell you a little bit about who they were and why they did what they did, and you're going to find Jesus all over the place in ways that you did not know. The Declaration of Independence came out on July 4th, 1776. That's why it's the birthday of our country. That was written by delegates from each colony that had a meeting to discuss whether we should break away from Great Britain and become our own country. There were 56 men there. Benjamin Franklin was the only really old man. 18 of them were under 40. 18 of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence were in their 30s. Three were in their 20s. I suppose the most famous one that you would remember is John Hancock. If you went to public school, you may not even know that much. But John Hancock signed it very large because the King of England had bad eyesight. And he, wanted, he said, I'm going to sign it really large so he sees my name first. Half of the 56 were judges and lawyers, 11 were merchants, 9 were farmers, and the other 12 were doctors, ministers, and government authorities of various persuasions, and, and these men knew what they risked. They were committing treason, and they knew it. And they were committing treason with the police and the soldiers of the British government just right down the street. They were sober men. They were not dreamy-eyed intellectuals and flag burners. They were far from the irrational, angry haters that burn and loot cities today. It was change that these men resisted. It was equality that they desired. It was taxation with representation that they sought. It was not an angry, hateful rebellion. It was calm, it was thoughtful, and it was intentional. As each delegate stepped up to sign and took his turn at the table, it was completely silent. There was no chanting or cheering or stirring up the mob in the street. They prayed before they did it, and after it was all signed... They went on the rest of the day with other business. That actually happened on July 2nd that the declaration was signed. It took two days to make the public proclamation, which is why we celebrate on the 4th, because that was when independence was declared, even though it was signed on the 2nd. It took two days for them to finish their business because they knew that once it was public, they were going to have to flee for their lives. And so on July 4th, 1776, the declaration was made public, and they had to disband and flee the meeting. Francis Lewis the delegate from New York, immediately, in fact, I think it was the very day, his home was plundered and burned and his wife was captured and treated with the greatest brutality by the British soldiers. 
She was later exchanged for two British soldiers in a prisoner exchange, but she died from the effects of what they'd done to her. William Floyd, another delegate from New York, was able to escape with his wife and children across Long Island Sound to Connecticut, and they lived there in hiding for seven years as refugees without any income, and they came home to a burned house. Philip Livingston, these are the signers of the Declaration of Independence, had all his land confiscated, his family driven from their home, and he died in 1778, still working for independence during the war, not knowing that what he was working for was ever going to succeed. Lewis Morris, also from New York, saw his timber and crops and livestock taken, and for seven years he could not go home and see his family. John Hart of New Jersey, 65 years old, keep that in mind, 65 years old, risked his life to return home to see his dying wife. Soldiers rode after him, and he had to escape into the woods. And while his wife lay on her deathbed, soldiers burned his house and wrecked his homestead. And he slept in caves and in the woods while he was hunted across the countryside. And months later, emaciated by the hardship, he was finally able to sneak in to find his wife. He found that she had already been buried and his 13 children were missing and he never found a single one. He died in 1779, a broken man, not knowing where any of his kids were. It's the price he paid for what we celebrate tomorrow. And Abraham Clark had two teenage sons that he gave to be in the officer corps of General Washington's army. They were both captured in the course of battle and taken to a prison ship uh, in New York Harbor. It was called the Hell Ship Jersey, where the British intentionally starved 11,000 of our men to death. And both of his boys, 17 and 19 when they started, but older by now, both of the boy, his boys were held and intentionally starved because their dad had been a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Toward the end of the war, the British sent him a letter. He said, if you will publicly recant your signature and you will come out in favor of the king, we will release your sons from the ship. And he sent him back a one-word letter, no. Why did they do that? And why am I telling you this? Because this isn't history class, this is church. I understand that. I'm going somewhere with this. But why did they do what they did? Why did they pay the price they paid? What did they see and what did they believe? Well, Patrick Henry tells us. Patrick Henry was one of the points of the spear of the revolution. He said, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religious people, but by Christians on the gospel of Jesus Christ. For this very reason, peoples of other faiths have been afforded asylum, prosperity, and freedom of worship here. That quote's not in your textbooks in history class in high school. You've heard, give me liberty or give me death, but you've never heard, I did what I did because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Rather shocking. Also from Patrick Henry, who later became the governor of Virginia. In his will, he wrote this. After he had delineated all of his property to his family, he said, this is all the inheritance that I can give my dear family. The religion of Christ can give them one that will make them rich indeed. Do you see that this is not a man who is a generic Christian or generically believes in a God, but he tells his kids and grandkids, know Jesus Christ and you will be rich indeed. Hello? Also from Patrick Henry, the Bible is worth more than all the other books that were ever printed. Amen. Dr. Benjamin Rush is the next one I want to tell you about, signer of the Declaration of Independence. He was one of the younger ones. I think he was only 36 when he signed 
1776. Listen to what Dr. Benjamin Rush wrote. My only hope of salvation is in the infinite, transcendent love of God manifested to the world by the death of his son upon the cross. Nothing but his blood will wash away my sins. I rely exclusively upon it. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Now you go to all the monuments around the United States and there's quotes from Lincoln and Washington and Jefferson and, and all these statues around. You don't ever see the name Jesus Christ. I mean, the public officials, they allow the word God or that divine being or providence. And they're real quotes, but Jesus Christ has been expunged from the public record. But Dr. Benjamin Rush said, I rely exclusively upon his blood for my salvation. Come, Lord Jesus. My point is that this is a man who, who wasn't just religious. He didn't just go to church on Sunday. He was intimately acquainted with Jesus Christ. He knows the truth. He was truly born again and saved, and he did what he did because of it. Another quote from Dr. Benjamin Rush. One you may not have heard of, but one of the most influential men at the time, for sure. He said, the only way to preserve freedom is the universal education of our youth in the principles of Christianity by the means of the Bible. For this divine book, above all others, favors that equality among mankind, that respect for just laws and those sober and frugal virtues which constitute the soul of a republic. But if moral precepts alone could have reformed mankind, the mission of the Son of God into all the world would have been unnecessary. The perfect morality of the gospel rests upon the doctrine which, though often controverted, has never been refuted. I mean the vicarious life and death of the Son of God. Let me translate. They use big words. They use lots of words. Dr. Benjamin Rush says, in this new country that we're making, the only way we're going to ensure freedom is that every child in school is educated in the Bible. But we're not trying to make them good people because if they're only good people, then Jesus is unnecessary. We have to present the gospel and they know that Jesus Christ died for them and rose from the grave. Amen! Amen! He's not the only one. Many of the men of this time, this is the point of public school, is to teach our kids the Bible. How far we have fallen. Samuel Adams, called the father of the revolution, cousin of John Adams, first uh, vice president, the second president. Samuel Adams, in his will, and again, his will is not my point, I just want to show you his faith. In his will, he wrote this, I recommend my soul to that almighty being who gave it, and my body I commit to the dust, relying upon the merits of Jesus Christ for a pardon of all my sins. Who knew? If you went to public school in the last 20 years, you may not even know who Samuel Adams is. You may think he was a beer brewer or a beer brand. He's a believer in Jesus Christ, and he did what he did in faith. Next one I want to tell you about is John Jay, the first chief justice of the Supreme Court. This is in an official Supreme Court ruling of the United States. He wrote, the Bible will also inform them that our gracious creator has provided for us a redeemer in whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed and that this redeemer has made atonement for the sins of the whole world and thereby reconciling the divine justice with the divine mercy has opened a way for our redemption and salvation and that these inestimable benefits are for the free gift and grace of God, not of our deserving nor in our power to deserve. Amen. Can you imagine? If Clarence Thomas wrote that in a ruling today, can you imagine? Go, Jesus. Next one. Robert Treat Payne, another signer of the Declaration of Independence. I desire to bless and praise the name of God most high. 
for appointing me my birth in a land of gospel light where the glorious tidings of a Savior and a pardon and salvation through him who have been continually sounding in mine ears. I fully believe in his providential goodness and his forgiving mercy revealed to the world through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was in these men's hearts. They knew him. They didn't just go to church on Sunday. They didn't just believe in a generic God. They didn't just believe in a generic Christianity. They knew Jesus Christ. There are so many of them, I had to cut like 12 pages off my sermon notes just to not bore you to death with all of the men who not just said God or the Almighty or Providence, but named the name of Jesus. So I narrowed it down to 20. We'll keep going. Next one, General Rufus Putnam. What an awesome name. One of General Washington's subordinate generals. I want to get a great big dog and name him General Rufus Putnam. I don't know. I just, I mean, I can't name my kid that, but I just, wow. Okay, this is from his will. Again, the will is not the point. I just want you to see, hear his faith. First, I give my soul to a holy sovereign God who gave it in humble hope of blessed immortality through the atonement and righteousness of Jesus Christ and the sanctifying grace of the Holy Spirit. My body I commit to the earth to be buried in a decent Christian manner. I fully believe that this body shall, by the mighty power of God, be raised to life at the last day. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. 1 Corinthians 15, 53. Amen. That's the man who served under George Washington. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the resurrection. I'm his man. That's why I do what I do. What a great name. Next one. Roger Sherman signed the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and apparently was too poor to afford a good painter. I believe that there is, only li- there is one only living and true God existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, that the scriptures of the Old and New Testament are a revelation from God, and that God did send his own Son to become man, to die instead of sinners, and thus to lay a foundation for the offer of pardon and salvation to all mankind, so as all may be saved who are willing to accept the gospel offer. Amen. What great men did God assemble? in that room 244 years ago yesterday. What great men. John Witherspoon, a clergyman, a pastor, a preacher, signer of the Declaration of Independence. I entreat you in the most earnest manner to believe in Jesus Christ, for there is no salvation in any other. If you are not reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, if you are not clothed with the spotless robe of his righteousness, you must forever perish. That's the truth, folks. That's real faith. That's not religion. That's, I know Jesus Christ, and I know the truth of the Bible, and I know God. These are the men who created our country. Next one. James McHenry, a signer of the Constitution. Public good pleads most forcibly for the general distribution of the Holy Scriptures. Okay, they use big fancy vocabulary. He says, in order for our country to be a good country, we have to have as many Bibles as possible. Okay, The doctrine they preach, the Holy Scriptures. The doctrine they preach, the obligations they impose, the punishment they threaten, the rewards they promise, the stamp and image of divinity they bear, which produces a conviction of their truths, can alone secure a society to order and peace and our courts of justice and constitutions of government. Purity, stability, and usefulness. In vain, without the Bible, we increase penal laws. He says only the Bible can make America a safe, good 
prosperous place. If people do not believe the Bible, then in vain we just pass more laws and create more inmates, but nothing improves. Is that not a prophecy or what? This is a man who knows the truth. I'm glad I don't have to wear a boot wig to preach in or one of those froofy collars. I'm really glad I don't have to dress like that. James Madison, our fourth president, called the father of Constitution because he wrote most of it. It is not the talking, but the walking and working person that is the true Christian. Come on, he's named after James in the Bible. And his namesake, that's from the book of James. Let's not talk, but let's do it. Come on, that's not a man that just goes to church and says, yes, I believe in God. That person doesn't say this. The person that talks their Christianity is worthless. The person who lives it and walks it out and does it day after day is the real Christian. That's our fourth president. That's the man who wrote our Constitution. That's real faith. And might have had something to do with what he wrote in the book. I mean, in the document. Also, President Madison, next quote, we have staked the whole future of American civilization not on the power of government, far from it. We have staked the future of our institutions upon the capacity of each and every one of us to obey the Ten Commandments of God. Amen, President Madison. And lastly, we come to President George Washington. There's several quotes from him I could have used. I just picked two. Uh, the Delaware Indian Nation sent a delegation to him once we had become our own country and were free from the British. They, wanted, they, had, they had had a treaty with the British, and now they wanted a treaty with the United States. Now that it exists. And in, in his answer, just this one piece... He says, after he's answered all of their questions and addressed the treaties, he says, above all, above all, learn the religion of Jesus Christ. It will make your lives better and happier than they presently are. Here is a prayer handwritten by General Washington in his prayer journal that was with his Bible. I have sinned and done very wickedly. Be merciful to me, O God, and pardon me for Jesus Christ's sake. Thou gavest thy son to die for me and has given me assurance of salvation. Upon my repentance and sincerely endeavoring to confirm my life to his holy precepts and example. Wouldn't it be awesome if that was the quote on the Washington Monument on the mall? Because that is the most important thing he ever said. Is his requesting Almighty God to forgive his sins for Jesus' sake. He said a lot of great things, but that's the most important thing he ever said. Right there. Martha Washington, her granddaughter said... My grandmother never once missed her daily devotion two hours on her knees before sunrise every morning of her life. My point is this. Again, not a history lesson. My point is that Jesus Christ, not some generic God or an undefined religion or even some generic Christianity, but Jesus Christ has been moving and directing events in our country since the very beginning. He was in the hearts of the people who did what they did 244 years ago. And it never stopped. It wasn't perfect then, and it isn't perfect now, but Jesus has never stopped moving and working. I want to read to you the first three paragraphs of a sermon from July 4th, 1825. The 4th of July used to be a holiday to go to church. Every little town and village, all the churches would meet together on the green, for a morning worship service, and one of the preachers would preach, and then after that they would have the picnic and the parade and the fireworks. But it was always a day to go to church and give thanks to God for our country. From July 4th, 1825, 49 years after the revolution, Reverend James Patterson, a Presbyterian preacher, says this. This guy pulls no punches. 
I'm talking about Jesus is always at work. We are assembled today to commemorate one of the most glorious events recorded in our history, and he means our freedom, Declaration of Independence. But while offering up our prayers and thanks to our great deliverer for our freedom, fellow citizens, will you allow me to remind you that there is a race of beings at our own fireside wearing a chain much more galling than that our fathers did. A white preacher talking to white people said, our nation is being worse than the British were to us. 49, just 49 years after the revolution, and, and I could have given you many examples of the preachers in the north and some in the south who preached freedom in Jesus Christ. The haters want to hate America. Well, they, they sign the Declaration of Independence and they talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and justice for all, but there, there wasn't. There wasn't justice for this group and that group and these people. We, Jesus worked it out, and he is still working it out. And he was never not at work in this, continuing his sermon. It has always appeared to me equally incongruous and unchristian to assemble together to hear our Declaration of Independence read while we at the very moment are holding men in slavery, men whose blood is the same with that in our own veins. See two men at the same door, of the same blood, of the same creator. One mounts his horse and rides off to celebrate his independence, pouring forth the best feelings of his heart for his liberty. And the other, perhaps at that very moment, a chain sinking into his flesh, goes off to hard work and bondage, pouring forth the direst execrations of his heart against the man who constantly deprives him of his liberty. Amen? My point is not to talk about slavery or the Civil War or anything like that. My point is just that the true Christians... At every stage and every point and every event in American history, the true Christians have been preaching justice in the gospel all along. And it takes decades to work it out. But the church has been fasting and praying and protesting and marching for 50 years against Roe v. Wade, and last week it falls down. Praise God. Praise God. But Jesus is always working. There are always someone speaking the truth if you're willing to listen, because Jesus is always at work. There are always Christians working to set wrongs right, even sacrificing their own lives for justice and the gospel. And that isn't just a nice service in church. It has to work itself out in every area of life, including economics and government. Jesus is always working towards something good in your own individual life and in our country. Jesus is always involved in the events, big and small. The first telegraph message was a Bible verse. The first radio transmission was a hymn. The first event of the moon landing was communion. Jesus is always there when something big happens. He's, when there's an epoch change, a new technology, he's there. He's in it. America has had numerous powerful revivals in the 17 and 18 and 1900s, even in the 2000s. We have sent out more missionaries than the rest of the world combined. So... God is not an American, and America is not entitled to any special favoritism from God, but I just want to point out that Jesus is present in all of America's past, so he is present today in our present, so he is already present in our tomorrow. The American church since the 70s has kind of had this, we're just waiting for Jesus to come back kind of mentality, last one raptured, turn the lights off when you leave. 
And then there's so many doomsayers and naysayers in, in politics, both conservative and liberal, and, and, and the world's going to hell in a handbasket and America's over, the glory days are over, it's all ruined, it's just, it's just, no, I don't know what's coming, except that I expect some pretty hard, really rough stuff in the next couple of years. Really dramatic, maybe even scary. But Jesus is already there. And there's been some really big and dramatic and scary and really, really hard stuff all through the 244 years of our country. Jesus was there. And he had his people, men and women, in the right place at the right time, signing the right document, fighting the right battle on the right battlefield, preaching the right sermon, we're inventing the new technologies, or whatever it is, Jesus has got it. So I don't know what his plans for America are in our future, but we cannot just resign ourselves to it's over, gas is going to go to $15, and there isn't going to be any food in the grocery store, and the elections are never going to be honest, and all these dire predictions, it could get really, really bad. But Jesus is there. Or maybe it could be really, really good. Maybe God's got an ace up his sleeve. I don't know. I'm not here to predict anything except that when we get there, there's Jesus. Because back then, there was Jesus. Even though the world expunges him from the record, they'll allow the word God or providence on a, on a statue or a monument or in a history high school textbook. But it was Jesus. Real knowledge of the Savior, not dead religion, that created this country and has sustained it and will continue it. We have every reason to celebrate tomorrow. We have every reason to be happy, to honor those that have gone before us, our fathers and mothers who serve the Lord. In their culture, in their day, in their understanding, they serve the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for revealing yourself to us in our history, that you were there, that you were working, that you had your people in place, doing what they did because of their faith in you and your gospel. Well, the world could try to erase your name from the public record, but there you are, out of the mouths and out of the hearts of the real human beings who were really there saying what they believe and why they did what they did. Lord, forgive us for anger and for doom and gloom and, or resignation even. There's every reason for hope, for thankfulness, to celebrate what you have done and in faith to celebrate what you will do. Thank you that you show yourself woven all through the events of our history so we know that you will be there woven into all the events of our future. You never leave us or forsake us. Lord, our reliance is on you and not anything or anyone else. And we make no assumptions on what your plans might be. But we pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ. In you is true freedom and real life, liberty and happiness. Thank you for what you've blessed our country with. 
And in the name of Jesus Christ, we bless our country. We bless our homeland. You said to bless our king. So I bless our president and our Congress and our courts and our governor, our fellow Oregonians, our neighbors and classmates and coworkers and students and our families, Lord. Jesus, we need you. We desperately need you. We are a, a broken culture. We are a broken people. We are a rebellious people, a lawless nation. We have not done what our forefathers said. They told us to trust and obey you and to read your word, and that is, as a nation, that has been rejected. But Lord, you have your people, you have your church, you have your salt and light everywhere. So much has been forced on us, Lord, in our culture, in our government. and It wasn't what, what people wanted, but it's so destructive. Satan has had so many inroads, Lord, into families and the education system and the government and the medical system and all of it, Lord. And we need you, Jesus. We need you to do what you did in the days of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and Charles Finney and Dwight Moody, Billy Graham and Bill Johnson, Lord. We need you to move, blow your spirit across this land, do what only you can do. Only you can deliver the captive and set the prisoner free. Only you can bind up the brokenhearted. Only you can change a heart. Only you can change a mind. As we proclaim your gospel, your spirit must move. As we shine your light, you must draw all men to yourself. We need you desperately, Jesus. We pray for mercy for our country. We admit that we deserve judgment. We confess that we are a rebel people. But we, your holy people, your holy nation right here in this church, Lord, we bow our knee. We say Jesus is king. Start with us. Rule our hearts and then come out our mouths and our hands. Shine your light through us. Speak your gospel through us. That we would be a blessing to our nation, and that your kingdom would come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We love you, Lord, and we bless your holy name.